You're listening to episode 65 of the National Centre for Writing podcast. Every week, we tell stories about writers and discuss writing techniques. It's the 11th of October 2019 here at Dragon Hall in Norwich as we're recording today's episode. I'm Steph McKenna, Communications Manager, and I'm joined by Simon Jones, Digital Marketing Manager. Hello, Steph. Last weekend, we were at the Cheltenham Literature Festival announcing the latest list of writers in the International Literature Showcase. This year, we've invited curators to come along and make selections for us. We had Elif Shafak at London Book Fair, and then Val McDermott joined us in Edinburgh a couple of months ago. And we've now got Jackie Kay with her list of BAME writers. Yes, so uh, you can see the full selection of writers on the website if you go to nationalcentreforwriting.org.uk forward slash ILS, where you'll also find Elif and Val's lists too. Yes, and from the Cheltenham event, if you weren't able to be there, you can watch a video of the entire thing where Jackie is in conversation with three of her selected writers. And for those based a little closer to Norwich, our Dragon Hall Social's coming up next week. So each month on the second Tuesday, we have a free evening of conversation, ideas and support. This is a monthly event that we run the second Tuesday of each month. So it's a great opportunity for anyone who loves reading, loves writing. Yeah, and it's very informal, very casual. It doesn't matter whether you're a published writer, whether you've just started, whether you're not even sure if you want to call yourself a writer yet. Come along, it's very friendly and we can meet other people in the area. On the podcast today, we have Sarah Collins, the author of The Confessions of Franny Langton. She was in town for Noirage about a month ago, and we sat down with her to talk about the writing of the book and wanting to write a book that featured characters that she felt were missing in the books that she read when she was younger, and the importance of representation in fiction, both in terms of the writers and the characters in the books. When I talked to Sarah, she'd just come from the signing room where she'd been signing books for a long list of people. So here's me talking with Sarah Collins. Yeah, and the thing is, I like talking to everyone, and I know it's probably not the right way to do it, but I feel like I've been in those lines. Yeah. You know, and when you get to the author and they just sign it, it's like it just feels like you haven't had a moment. And I, I mm-hmm. love every single reader. Like I still, I even tried to respond to every single reader on social reader yes, on social yeah. media, even though it takes a lot of time, uh-huh. because those people are, you know, the feeling of having those people read my books is still so special to yeah. me. Yeah, so, someone's yeah. put that But then it means that you have a line. It's like, okay, pressure, pressure, pressure. Yeah. What's my name? What's your name, Sarah? <laughs> okay, fine. <laughs> I wonder if there's some kind of, is there a threshold of success when that gets harder Yeah, harder? I mean, Margaret Atwood can't talk no. to every single reader. No, it's like sure. yeah, all those millions of people that follow her. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> she cannot say thank you to everyone. No, so. absolutely. To start off, it would be nice to talk about how you became the debut writer that was on the panel today, having, I think, for many years been a lawyer Mm -hmm. and had a career in a completely different area. And so why become a writer now? I always wanted to be a writer. I've, I've always been a massive bookworm and it's been the number one love of my life since as long as I can remember. So I was one of those people that, um, became a writer because I loved reading so much um, and read so much and so widely and for so long that it felt like there wasn't any other option mm-hmm. that, you know, it, it sounds a bit cliched, but it felt like a calling, like it was something I had to do. And so I spent, although I spent 17 years as a lawyer, I spent those 17 years really miserable because... I knew not only that I wanted to do something else, but that I should be doing something else. 
Um, did you know and then, what that something else was during that period? I, yeah, I, I, I wanted to write a novel that would make readers feel the way I had felt when I read some of the books that changed my life, you know, starting very early on with Jane Eyre, um, in whom I really saw myself, you know, identified with her as a as an outsider, someone who had been born into circumstances that dictated that should be she should be an underdog, but she refused to accept that. And so there I was in this small island, no one expects anything from, you know, they certainly don't expect um, novels published on an international scale. And I had no examples of people like me who had done something like that. But nor did I have any examples of people like me in the page, you know, especially in the books that I was reading. And um, I think it's the power of fiction is that you can you can close all kinds of gaps. Um, you don't need permission to write. No one has to open any doors for you. You can literally sit down and start when you decide to start. So I, I had the urge for a long time, but um, I think I... I maybe had to just give myself permission, if that makes sense, or realize that I didn't need it. Um, and that I didn't have to live down to the expectations that other people might have had, that you know, people like me who come from places like the place I come from didn't do things like this. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and it feels like it was a book that you wished had existed when you were younger. And in terms of those kind of missing aspects of representation, both in terms of the people writing the books and the, the characters in the books? Was that kind of a conscious decision? Absolutely. Um, so the book came from being really fed up about how black characters are portrayed in historical fiction, and in particular, this idea that because of the reality of slavery, black characters in historical fiction are always going to be seen as victims. Um, they're never going to have adventure. They're never going to have love stories. Um, they're ne never going to have the kinds of experiences that make for a page-turning novel. Mm -hmm. um, but then, you know, you have to ask yourself why. Uh, it didn't make any sense to me that um, that black characters were straight-jacketed into these um, novels that didn't allow them the kind of passion and the kind of humanity that we would expect from anyone. And that was a big part of the reason why, as you say, you have to write the novel that you think you want to read. Obviously, Franny does have a background where she's come from a slave background. So how did you go about approaching that, but, but doing it in a new way so that she wasn't just the victim and presented in the way that you'd maybe encountered in other books. Yeah. I mean, it it was easy in a way. If you think about the fact that um, she's the character that the, the character I was trying to create anyway is just as human as, as I am. Um, what I did, strangely enough, was imagine myself back there, and I've written about this in the past. Um, you know, what if... Um, some nefarious time travel machine swept me back to the early 19th century. Well, it wouldn't be a particularly romantic or pleasant experience <laughs> for someone like me. But then I started asking questions, which I think, um, you know, questions are a good way to start novels. And one of my questions was, what would you, what would you have lost if that happened to you that would make the biggest difference in your life? 
And so the obligatory answer is family and all my loved ones, get them out of the way. But really the thing that would, the thing that would have, I think, fundamentally altered my life and how I saw myself would have been the fact that I would have had no access to books, no access to learning. And that was it. It was like a door open for me. There was the character. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I could almost see her, this young girl growing up on a plantation and looking inside the windows of this great house. And not only does she want the life of the glamorous woman, you know, her mistress that she's sort of spying on inside, but she also really wants the book. She's really attracted to um, what she thinks of as a life of the mind. She wants to be intelligent. She wants to be educated. And then the question is, how far would she go to get there? What mm-hmm. would she do? What would she have to sacrifice? Um, and is it worth it at any price? Yeah. And it sounds like books have been such a critical part of your life. And I think you've, you've talked and written about how books provide a kind of home and a space for you to inhabit it's kind of slightly separate from the real world and gives you views into other realities and other people and was writing Confessions of Freddie Langton your way to try and give some some of that back to other people? Um, So first of all yes books I think books definitely saved my life Um, they certainly changed it and Part of the reason that I turned to reading for comfort, I think, has to do with my early experiences. So when I was very young, my family was forced to leave Jamaica um, in 1976 after a period of political violence. And so, so you know, I, I became an immigrant at the age of four and we moved to a place where Jamaicans weren't really welcome. Um, so it felt, you know, even at a very young age, I remember feeling like I didn't belong um, and losing myself in a book or in the library, and I learned to read very early, uh, was the place where I found comfort and where it didn't matter what my background was. Um, and that feeling never left me. So, and I also think that, that the reason you write is to connect from the other side of that conversation. So reading is like a conversation, for me anyway, between reader and writer. Um, and that if you've been if you've been on the listening side or the receiving side for long enough as a reader, you might find that you have something to say of your own. <laughs> yeah. And then you know what does any writer write to achieve? Um, for me, a big part of it is not just being heard but being understood. You know, it's the same moment of connection sometimes between writer to reader as you feel reader to writer when you hear from readers who have read the book in a way that even that even you didn't anticipate um that can change your own life and your own way of looking at the world and that's been one of the most powerful experiences for me since having the book published and this this being your first book this is a lot of these things are first for you and discovering you know what it's like to be published and then to have other people start to have those interactions with something that up until that point was just in your head Exactly. It's a feeling I can't still get used to. A very um, surreal, almost out-of-body feeling because, um, you know, in a way, when you finish the book and send it out, it it strangely has very little left to do with you. It becomes 
something entirely separate and kind of takes on a life of its own. But then, you know, you're pulled back into the orbit of the book when readers engage with you. Um, and, you know, it can be really enjoyable if you, if you stay away from the sort of negative Amazon or Goodreads reviews. <laughs> then what you get out of it is, um, is as I say, this kind of mo these moments of really profound connection. Um, that are just as magical as the experience of reading a good book. You, you write, most of us, I think, write because we want to make someone feel the way we felt reading our favorite books. And so when you get that back and you feel like it's actually worked, um, it, can, it can be really meaningful. Mm -hmm. um, so being a historical novel, but writing it now, or, you know, over the last five years or so, how has, you talked in the panel about how as you were writing the book around 2015, 2016 and the, the political events in the world, how did that impact on this book that was set a long time ago, but presumably you wanted it to have resonance now as well? Yeah. I think it was Margaret Atwood who said that historical novelists don't write about the past, they write about people. Um, and one thing that struck me very strongly when I was writing about the book is that the difficulties and troubles we experience and the way they make us feel doesn't change. That's a very strong constant throughout history. Um, also, frustratingly, that many of those difficulties, um, although they may seem to be getting better, actually just resurrect themselves in a different form. And so I was, um, I was really frustrated when doing my research for the novel by the extent to which the things I was writing about as 19th century, early 19th century concerns were coming back um, just as forcefully as, as ever. Uh, for example, this idea that there is some link between race and intelligence which is used to justify all kinds of white supremacist policies and positions and attitudes towards women's rights and towards sexuality. Um, and so, as I said on the panel, one of the things that resulted from that, um, which I hadn't anticipated when I started writing the book, was that I began to be much more interested in exploring the idea that that we should be angry, that, and, and in particular that anger from women is a kind of useful response to the things that, things that are being done, and certainly in the context of my novel that were being done in the early 19th century. And then I was surprised and amazed that you don't actually find more of it, either in novels written during the period or, um, you know, modern historicals now looking back on the 18th and 19th centuries, that um, black people who had experienced slavery or been touched with it, by it in some way, um, would have been angry. But it doesn't seem to be an emotion that is much talked about, either in the history or the fiction covering the time period. And I began to suspect that that gap was slightly deliberate, that we feel like we can't stomach it, um, that there's mm -hmm. something too challenging about it, so we won't go there. Yeah, it feels like anger is something that can then be sort of willfully misrepresented. Exactly, exactly. And there are, you know, so people say all the time that um, 
that novels are political and to a certain extent dealing with anger in a novel is a very political thing to do um, or it's seen as very political I think it's a very human thing to do because I think it's a sort of universal human emotion and it's a it's a kind of expected response to the sorts of experiences that people had during that time and under that institution but it's seen as challenging this idea about who's allowed to be angry. And if you think about it, um, deciding, you know, put, fitting people into categories, um, one of which is who will we accept anger from, also divides them into the same old age-old categories of who's been allowed to write, who really holds power in society, um, who is in charge of the historical record. Um, all of it points back in one direction. Um, and I found that interesting as well. The more I wrote, the more I realized there are these parallels between, you know, whose anger has dominated world history, um, who has been essentially instrumental in writing all of the fiction and literature that we consider canonical, sorry, the fiction that we consider canonical and the history that we accept as fact. Um, and also who's allowed to love? Who, whose stories about love do we take seriously? Um, and in all of those cases, people like me, you know, black women from the Caribbean, from small islands were, were seen as insignificant or experiences were seen as insignificant. Mm -hmm. And now that this book exists and you know, those experiences you've been able to put into your story, what's the reception felt like you know, as a first time writer? I mean, you mentioned Margaret Atwood earlier. Yes. Dropped into conversation, <laughs> but obviously, can you imagine dropping <laughs> yes. Margaret Atwood into conversation? Uh -huh. Look where I've reached. <laughs> yeah. And you know, your book has a quote from her on the front cover. Yes. So, I mean, what kind of mental shift do you have to undergo to go from you know not having a book published to having a book published that <laughs> Margaret Atwood likes? If I knew that, I would undergo it because I still feel <laughs> like my head is spinning in a way. I mean, I, I joke about it, but. I do have moments where I stop whatever I'm doing and remind myself that Margaret Atwood, one of my two literary heroes, the other being Toni Morrison, not only read my book, but, you know, took the time to comment on it. Um, I really hope I never get used to that because there is something to be said as a debut novelist for soaking in these moments of joy. And I also hope I will never forget the really difficult period during the writing of the novel when I was filled with self-doubt and when I felt like I was never going to finish it, that I had taken on something that was just bigger than me um, and that, you know, at one point actually gave up and how horrible that felt, how defeated I felt, um, what it took to bring myself back to the work. I think I have to hold on to that because otherwise you can start, you can start taking some things for granted that should never be taken for granted. Even the experience of seeing the book for sale in a bookshop is something that I will stop. You know, every time I come across it, I will stop and just savor that moment because mm -hmm. it is so meaningful when you think about how much hard work and luck goes into getting there. Yeah. Yeah, I think human brains are quite good at taking things for granted. Yes. And kind of retroactively applying a complete yes. story to things. Yes. Yeah, so, you know, it's funny what we will adjust to. That works both ways, you know, as I mean, I, I just finished reading the Testaments and again, you know, the sort of the underlying themes of of the two novels in that in that pair now. The um the idea that 
the human brain will adjust to horrible things and start to see them as normal. But I'm resisting very strongly the idea that my brain will adjust to all of these marvelous things <laughs> and start to see them as normal. <laughs> Excellent. So what is next? You know, you're, you're here today because you're talking about your first book. Are, are there more books to come? I hope so. I've, so I've started writing my second book, but you know, the second book doesn't feel any easier than the first. And I, I have started out so far with the same sense of trepidation and trying to figure out if I can remember how I did it. Um, and also feeling daunted by the idea that I might have to go through that sort of terrible period again when you have to really um, regroup and pull yourself back into work that feels impossible. But I think like a lot of writers, I have uh, I have discovered an addiction to it and it's as strong as my addiction to reading. So like any addiction, even though it's at times bad for me, I suspect I'm going to go back for more. Mm-hmm. That's a good place to stop. Thank you. <laughs> thanks very much for having me. Thanks for listening and thanks to Sarah for talking to us. If you want to get in touch with the National Centre for Writing, you can find us on Twitter and Instagram at Writers Centre. You can search for our page on Facebook and you can find out about everything we're doing on our website at nationalcentreforwriting.org.uk. That's where you can also sign up to our newsletter. If you want to get in touch with us as individuals, you can find me on Twitter at Tarnimus and Steph. I am at Steph X McKenna. Please do rate, review and subscribe to the podcast because it helps other people to find it. Thanks again. Keep writing and we'll catch you on the next episode. But a bunch.